You are listening to Radio Free Nashville, 107.1 and 103.7 FMLP and streaming live at RadioFreeNashville.org. Welcome to the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour. In 18, I lived in Sequoia County. In 1918, my family was living in South Philadelphia. In 1918, we were living in El Paso, Texas. I was born and raised in Baltimore. In bustling cities and remote villages, in the United States and around the world, orphaned children cried for their parents in 1918. People of all cultures struggled with the same terrible threat. And within a matter of months, as many as 50 million would be dead. In the United States, the death toll reached 675,000, five times the number of U.S. soldiers killed in World War I. What was that deadly threat? Uh, survivors of the 1918 pandemic from a uh, documentary called We Heard the Bells, the Influenza of 1918. Uh, it's a documentary by Lisa Layden. And today we will examine the modern history of pandemic and see how it relates to what we are facing today and see if there are lessons we can learn. Oh, well, well, wait, did I say learn a lesson with this administration, with many of these state governments, with this level of disregard and disrespect for anything science? Well, we're going to do the show anyway, because we are positive that our listeners are far more aware than anyone in government, uh, anyone in charge. <laughs> so, but first, my name is Jim Walgamuth, and I was here with uh, Tom Gross via Zoom. Harvey's got the day off. We're members of Veterans for Peace, which is an international organization of military veterans and allies whose collective efforts are to build a culture of peace by using our experiences and lifting our voices for the causes of peace, humanity, equality, and justice. Our network is comprised of over 140 chapters worldwide. Our radio show is on stations across the country. We are now meeting once a month through Zoom. So please send me a text or um, check out our Facebook page and let us know you'd like to join. Now, texting, text to 703-403-6135, or go to our Facebook page, which is Veterans for Peace Chapter 089. You can also find us at Twitter, and if you want to find a catalog of all our shows via SoundCloud, you can go to bit.ly slash capital VFP radio hour. So it's bit.ly slash VFP radio hour. Also, if you're a station online or on air and would like us to send you a copy of our show for free, send me a text 703-403-6135. Okay. With that, we are the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour as part of Radio Free Nashville. We are supported in part by the Green Party of Tennessee, bringing some common sense into the bipolar world of American politics. Go to greenpartyoftennessee.org. Uh, happenings, we normally do some happenings, and it's all been happening around rallies in the streets. Um in remembrance and in honor of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and so many more, as the young people are really out there calling for racial justice, calling for justice. And so get online, get on Facebook, get wherever and find a rally, make a sign, grab your mask and go make a difference. The past several weeks, we've highlighted the rallies, marches, and occupations by young people in Nashville because Nashville is typical of many other cities. 
People are angry. They are making their voices heard. There's been an occupation led by Justin Jones at the newly named Ida B. Wells Plaza at the foot of Capitol Hill. The young people have been occupying for 24 hours a day for well more than a week. They have a number of racial justice demands, such as defunding police. And also, one thing that's unique to the Nashville area is they want the removal of the bust of Nathan Bedford Forrest from the Capitol Rotunda. Nevertheless, the state legislature voted to keep the bust and at the same time voted to honor the police. While they were taking away a woman's prerogative with her own body, and at the same time, they ignored a dedication that had passed unanimously in the Senate, but they blocked it in the General Assembly to honor the memory of a young African-American young lady who had just graduated from high school, was heading off to college, and who was killed in a crossfire. At the same time, across town, the city council of Nashville voted to increase the budget for the police. So it is apparent that despite the thousands of marchers day after day, the occupiers day and night, that our ruling bodies do not care about what the police, the voice of the people say. So we will see what happens next. In the meantime, we still battle our own pandemic. So let's reflect on the actions we are taking right now and the pandemics of the past and try to learn just a little bit. Here's Tom. So uh, if someone says that we were blindsided by the COVID-19 pandemic, they are part of the false narrative. There have been many pandemics in the last 100 years. It is only science and virologists who have tracked down the evidence and done the genome mapping that make our survival possible. By that I mean without studying the virus and understanding its actual genome, it's very hard to create the silver, silver bullet of a vaccine. And that's what these heroes do. They work tirelessly day after day to find uh, the lock and key or, or the serum or, or the vaccine that is, is going to go into a trial. But they can't do that without studying the virus itself. And that's, that's what viral science is about. Um, and then I have some clips here uh, that talks about uh, the people who have done the, the legwork of finding out what the virus from 1918 was like, because we didn't know about yeah. that virus, believe it or not, until 1997. Wow. In terms of it genetic makeup so it just hadn't been studied yeah uh and then we have a clip that uh introduces uh dr johan hilton uh and his search for viral specimens brevik mission is northwest of nome alaska on the bering sea the fact that brevik exists today is remarkable since of the 80 residents in 1918, only five adults and three children survived the flu pandemic. Over 50 years ago, a young man with an interest in viruses found his way to the village. I was a medical student in, uh, in Sweden, and I decided to travel to the United States and uh, get a master's degree in virology. And then one thing led to the next and to the next, and I... Decided that uh, go for my PhD, and one day we had a visitor, very prominent vi virologist, and I remember he's talking about everything that had been done to find out what was it to cause the 1918 flu, and then it, like a 15 second uh, comment at the end of his talk, he said somebody ought to go 
to the northern part of the world and try to find a victim of the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic buried in the permafrost. And that victim is likely to have been remained frozen for, for since 1918. At that time, it was something of 35 years or 40 years. And try to recover the virus. And then as if he went to something else. And that 15 seconds, <laughs> I happened to be there and heard it. Immediately went to my faculty advisor to ask him, could that be a subject for my PhD? He said, oh yeah, won't you go in it? I happened to have worked during the summer of 1949 for a paleontologist in Alaska. The paleontologist, Otto Geist, had worked on the Brevik Peninsula and knew the missionaries in the villages there. With Geist's help, Halton was able to review copies of mission records from the fall of 1918. He found that the military had very good records showing the location and thickness of the permafrost in Alaska. On the basis of that, I came with, decided on, on three, three villages. So I showed up in June, and I went to the first village, it's called Nome, it's a rather large city actually, Nome. I went into the mass grave at the cemetery and discovered that the river that normally had flowed on the side of the village at some distance away, it had changed course. Since 1918, it had come into the village and melted the permafrost. I could just see it. And then I engaged a bush pilot to fly me to another village called Wales at Bering Strait. I found where the mass grave was, clearly marked with a large cross. And the bluff had fallen on through the beach and almost excavated or invaded the mass grave. So I figured there is no permafrost here. So the bush pilot flew me to what today is, is Breivik. But there was no way to land there. I had to land on the beach at some distance away in another village. And then I had to cross some water with a whale boat. Got across this really sizable water. And then I had to walk about six miles in soggy tundra. It's just beginning to melt and then on to Breivik. They had a village council, the council of the elders. And it's a matriarchal society. So the eldest woman of the largest family makes decisions or, or heavily influences decisions. And little did I know that that was going to be very important later on. Fortunately for me, there were three survivors of the 1918 pandemic still alive. So I asked them to please tell the other members here of the club, what it was like in that November week when 90% of the village died. Then I said, I, if, if you allow me to enter the grave and if I am fortunate enough to come find the right specimens, I will take it back, the specimen back to uh, my laboratory and if everything works out well, it would be possible for us to develop a vaccine. So in the next pandemic coming, threatening you, we will have a vaccine to immunize you, protect you. And they understood what vaccine was because they had been immunized against smallpox. Uh, the matriarch, uh, Jenny Volana, was in favor of that. So that influenced the decision. So they allowed me to... to um, opened the grave. So I went out on the grave site and started to dig, and in about a foot down, I came onto permafrost. Very hard now, frozen ground. And I started a fire. Got drifted from the beach and climbed up on the bluff, and there was the mass grave, and started to melt the, the permafrost. And on the end of the second day, I came down about four feet, and there I found the first victim young child, a girl, I estimated 12 years of age, but the condition of her body at four feet from the surface was so good that I was confident that down deeper they will be even be better, better preserved uh, and adults and so on. 72 bodies in that grave. Now, I didn't 
come alone to Alaska. I had my faculty advisor, influenza virologist. I had a pathologist, one of the professors in the department in Iowa, to perform the postmortem examinations, and then autogeist. So there were four. I was out there ahead of them to, to scout the grid, to scout, to, to testing. A day later, they came to the same beach where I had landed earlier, and we traveled the same way back to, to Breivik. Now there were four of us digging, so we could do it very rapidly. About three days later, we were down six feet. And then we found three perfectly preserved bodies. And the pathologist performed the postmortems on them, and the lungs were, were perfectly preserved. Then we'd be left, thank the villagers, close the grave. And I took some pictures, of course, all the, all the time. So eventually I got to, to Iowa with this, and I started to try to grow the virus, trying to find an alive influenza virus. Week after week after week after week, I got more and more discouraged. And eventually I had no more specimen. And the virus was dead. And there went my PhD. I could see it fly off through the window in the, in the non-air-conditioned office, by the way, lab I had. I decided to go back to Sweden to continue my medical education, and I was exceeding, extremely fortunate of being, I was offered to continue medical school at Iowa. And then I got my MD there, become a pathologist. But back in my mind, I had this memory of not getting my PhD and all the effort went into that, and it was just kind of collapsed. And uh, the other guy involved in the 1918 virus was Dr. Jeffrey Halberger. They did an incredible uh, collaboration to map the 1918 virus. The story spans from 1951 with Dr. Hilton and the final culmination uh, where they got the mapping of the virus was in 1997. After many years of putting the pieces together, because they didn't have supercomputers then that were affected, uh, and uh, the story tells the serendipity uh, of how this these two guys ended up working together, even though. Uh, you know, at the beginning, they didn't even know each other. Molecular pathology is a specialty of medicine where pathologists use the tools of molecular biology and molecular genetics to make diagnoses and provide insight into patient care decisions. You can make diagnoses of infectious diseases by looking for the genetic material of the infectious organism, the virus or the bacteria, for example. I was in the National Cancer Institute as a pathologist in the 80s, and in 1993, I moved to the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology to set up a new group devoted to molecular pathology, both for clinical uh, molecular pathology as well as research. And one of the things we had to do for both sides of that was to work out ways to recover genetic material from typical biopsy material. The tissue repository at the AFIP goes back to the Civil War, so they have a huge collection of millions of tissue samples uh, reflecting all aspects of clinical disease, tumors and infectious disease, including autopsies of soldiers who died of flu in 1918. I wanted to think of uh, a project that would highlight the utility of having such an old tissue archive as well as our new molecular techniques in which we could do analyses. And the way those two things came together in my mind was to go after the 1918 flu. We thought that it might be possible to recover fragments of the genetic material of the virus still preserved in autopsy tissues of people who died in 1918. When we started the project, there were really two fundamental questions that we wanted to answer. That is, one, why was this virus so particularly virulent? Why did it kill so many people, especially young, healthy adults? And secondly, where did this virus come from? We were hoping to learn from what we see in 1918 to apply it to the future so that we could understand how pandemics form and why particular flu viruses cause more disease than others. These tissues were extremely old and it was not clear that we could actually recover any genetic material at all from these samples. We had to work out techniques and continue to refine the techniques to extract uh, nucleic acids, DNA and RNA, from these samples. 
We had uh, started this project in 1995, and uh, it, it took over a year to find a first positive case, to work out our techniques to make sure that we uh, actually could find influenza. Once we had found a first positive case and we started to generate sequence and compare it to known influenza viruses, we were convinced that we had really found the 1918 virus. But we were really concerned that there would be uh, inadequate amounts of material available to us to sequence the whole virus from that uh, material. In March of 1997, in Science News, there it was, 1918 pandemic virus found. A small sequence had been discovered by Jeffrey Tarnberger. I wrote a letter saying, if you need more specimens, let me know and I will go back to Alaska. I've been there before, I know where it is, I can go back. And uh, I, I didn't hear anything, I didn't hear anything. And I thought, well, he knows, he thinks I'm a nut, and that was just so bad. He happened to be on vacation, so he didn't get his mail. We were extremely excited about the possibility. We, we had hoped that if we could recover material from a frozen victim, that the quality of genetic material of the virus might be improved over what we had in these formal and fixed blocks. And he, he called me here. So he asked, when can you go? I said, I can't go this week, but I can go next week. And I call up to Breivik. Now, this time, when I come the second visit on 19, uh, 1997, it so happened it was in August. And that is a much better time to dig in the permafrost. What is he, the missionary? It's another, another one now. Pastor uh, Brian Crockett is, is his name. He's still there. And he knew of the excavation that I had carried out in 1951. And he also knew that I had to get the permission to do it again. So he said it was very difficult. You uh, may not be able to, to get a permission this time. But I, I, will, I will introduce you to Rita Olana. She was a matriarch at 1997. And little did I know that her grandmother was Jenny Olana. That was it. It would never have happened otherwise. Everything doesn't go wrong all the time. It just looks like that, but it did. Here it is. Crucial. Dr. Halton presented his case to the Brevik Village Council, including Rita Olana. He made sure they understood that the virus was dead and could not cause disease. I also told them how important it is because your participation... This is where it begins. And you're part of the team now, the villages of Breivik, and I'm the specimen collector, and then Dr. Tarbenberger in, in the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology. These are the three, but it begins with you. And I got the permission to go. I figured no one wants to go in a grave with bodies. So I, I all set to do it myself. And... Uh, so one of the members said, would you like to have some help? Four young men, Eskimos, assigned by the village council, assigned to help me. Because I photographed with me, I knew where the, where the grave was. So I marked it off. At the end of the, of the first day, we were down to about four feet, and I didn't see anything at all, and, and five feet. And the following day, I noticed that there were some bodies at seven feet found a, a skeleton, and then next to the skeleton was a, a woman, and perfectly preserved, with clothing had fallen off, rotted away, but I could see the skin, and it was of an obese woman. I got it to do the postmortem, and then I took the rib cage off, and there exposed their lungs. And they were the textbook picture of a person who had died from acute viral pneumonitis, exactly what I needed. The subcutaneous fatty layer of Lucy and fat inside, inside, of course, also, that had protected the lungs from... Uh, uh, the occasional thaws of the permafrost that had reached seven feet down. The Eskimos are not obese. 
there's not that much food around, and they were active and hard work, in particular in 1918. So find one who has had extra calories, storage calories. This is just remarkable. And here was a woman who had ample food, had a good husband, good seal hunter, walrus hunter, brought all this food for her. Can you imagine how fortunate? And then I decided before I leave, I'm going to make new crosses, show my gratitude to the village. I had photographs of the original crosses. I knew how tall they were, the width, everything. I finished my work with the crosses at one o'clock and about eight o'clock the next morning. The high school kids came and they helped me put the crosses in. And about an hour later, the bush pilot landed and I got all my specimens on board. And then I shipped them to Jeffrey Tarbenberger. The advantage that we had was that the formalin fixed autopsy tissue samples were extremely tiny, just the size of a fingernail, and so were very limiting, where he was able to provide us large sections of an entire lung, uh, so that even though the quality of RNA was lower, we had so much more material to work with, it became absolutely clear that we would be able to sequence the rest of the virus from that material. And I figured it would take weeks and weeks before he had any inkling of that the specimens were good. Like 10 days later, he called and he said, you know We have it. Specimen is good. And we have lots of specimen. Great material. And this is going to be wonderful. It was a great day for me. We could have started in 1955. Finally, in 1997, there it, here it is. Made it. But without the the Eskimos in Breivik, nothing would have come. The effort to sequence the entire genome of the 1918 virus from beginning to end took 10 years. Uh, it was a, a very laborious process. Well, more than 13,000 pieces of genetic information that had to be put together as a total. And I mean, it's incredible. It's clearly a virus that was human adapted, but genetically it's very bird-like in its sequence. It's very avian-like. And so what we think is that it is a, an entirely avian-like influenza virus that somehow adapted to humans. We now know that there are a number of mutations in several of the genes that are absolutely crucial in the adaptation to humans. And so you could imagine using these mutations as a screening tool to assess the significance of a bird strain as to whether it was actually moving along the path that would make it adapt to humans. If we identify changes that were crucial to allow a bird virus to replicate in humans, you could particularly design drugs that might block or bind to that particular change to prevent a bird virus from actually functioning in humans. The 1918 flu had as its most unique feature the fact that it had a high propensity to kill young adults ages 15 to 40. Even having the entire sequence of the virus in front of us, uh, we do not yet understand why it behaved in that manner. I favor the idea that people in that particular age group might have had the wrong sort of immunity to the 1918 virus. Some kind of uh, immune response that actually made them more susceptible to die in people older than about age 45 or 50 in 1918. There might have been pre-existing immunity to viruses similar to the 1918 virus. We're trying to identify influenza virus positive autopsy tissue samples from before 1918 to try to help us figure out this problem. And that's what happens in the scientific community. That's, that's why it's a shame these days that we are creating enemies of people that we need in order to have global answers to all of these problems, including pandemics. It doesn't help us to bad rap uh, the World Health Organization when they have some of the resources and the brain power to, to help us survive. And it even seems like uh, Trump has um, sidelined Fauci. We haven't heard from him for uh, weeks. Well, Fauci brings the inconvenient truth to Trump's sphere. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's, that's not something that he wants out there. I mean, you know, it, I guess it's part of the hoax theory. Yeah. 122,000 people dead is a hoax. Is a hoax. Well, even at the Trump's rally, he was saying, you know, the reason we've got so many cases, why cases are rising is because we're doing too much testing. 
So slow down on the testing. And the people bought it. The people in the audience bought it. Yeah, I think some, some of uh, why people, you know, go for this false narrative is is because it allows them to not take responsibility for what part they play in spreading the virus. I I would say this about the whole history of pandemics. Uh, it's a quote from Hippocrates. If us Greek scholars remember this guy, he's supposedly the father of modern medicine and the Hippocratic Oath. Mm -hmm. He said, it is through air that man tries and rises. It is through tragedy he learns. All the roads of learning begin in darkness and go out into the light. All right. It's profound. It's something that we could use today. <laughs> Exactly. We are we are consumed with the darkness. Yeah, I think sometimes I wake up in the morning and I catch a couple of things that come in on my news feed and I think, oh no, it's still the dark ages. <laughs> We've turned to the dark side. So yeah. can we get out? Okay, well, so that you know it's yeah. it's the only choice we have. If we're not gonna rely on science, we are gonna go back to a primitive state. Yeah. Now, what about if other countries rely on science while we don't? Well, we're already doing that with global warming. You know, we're, we're you know, sort of ignoring the inconvenient truth that we're destroying the planet and our own race at the same time. And other countries that are, I'm not saying they're doing enough, but they're acknowledging the problem and they're at least talking about it they're they're not you know moving fast enough but uh they're getting online technologies that will be part of the answer mm -hmm. meanwhile our administration here has been burying epa information uh lowering emission standards for cars uh making sure the fossil fuel industry you know you know, doesn't have a last gas, uh, not doing much about water pollution, and probably the next problem, shortage of water. Um, meanwhile, so all these other countries are going to bury us in the dust. Uh, if they have the technology, we were the technology whiz. We had all the answers, and now we're falling behind. And some of the countries are doing this because they it's a survival thing for China. If right. They, if they don't create a better environment there, they're going to kill millions of people. Yep. Millions of working people. Yes. Exactly. So your se the second phase, uh, your second set of clips, um, that talks about, that links pandemics to what's going on with the uh, environment, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh I think that's exactly what it's like. It's basically rushing out, doing exactly what you want, not thinking of the consequences, not thinking of the partner, in this case, nature, who is suffering and whose suffering will in turn come back on you. Well, the scientist was Alessandra Nava of the Biobank Research Center in the Brazilian Amazon. She said that we're treating nature promiscuously, but also that diseases were naturally diluted in the wild, but accelerated when this ecological balance is disrupted by man. You give Lyme disease as an example. Explain why this happens, what she meant. Well, she'd done some research in the Mata Atlantica. Of course, we all know the Amazon. The other great forest is the Mata Atlantica. And there they found that there is a very prominent species. It's called the capybara. And the capybara was carrying Lyme disease and taking it into human populations. And what they found was that the capybara was much, much more likely to carry Lyme disease if it was near a human settlement. By contrast, the capybara in the wild hardly had any cases of Lyme disease. And if it was in an area of the wild that still had jaguars, then there were no cases of Lyme disease because the jaguars naturally kept the species at a sort of a stable mm. level. So diseases are in the wild, but it's the humans 
that are increasing the risks of those diseases spreading out, mutating and crossing over into a form that humans become vulnerable. You give that example. Another is scientists who found viral prevalence at 9.3% in bats near deforested sites compared to 3.8% when they were found in pristine areas. Why do they have more of a viral load the closer they are to humans? In the wild, these viruses have always existed. There are many of them out there, but they tend to be in a few species, and those species have evolved over time to live in certain habitats. So there, there isn't so much crossover between species that have evolved in different ways. But when mankind comes in, clears the forest for logging or for farmland, it disturbs this balance. So they're concentrated in a smaller and smaller area of what's left. Or they have the choice to migrate into human disturbed areas like suburbs, like farmlands, like orchards. And animals are mixing that shouldn't mix or didn't mix before. And as a result, there's all of this potential for zoonotic contagion. And generally speaking, bats are really major carriers of viruses. When they come into human areas, but there's no record of them transmitting a disease directly to humans. But we know that in at least three cases, bats have contaminated other animals and those other intermediary animals have passed on the diseases to humans. So that was the 2002 case of SARS, another coronavirus, the 2012 case of MERS. And in each of these cases, these coronaviruses have gone from bats to an intermediary to humans. And it was predicted two years ago that the next big virus would emerge from bats in Asia and that there would be another one. And of course, that's exactly what's happened now. Uh, so to prevent future pandemics, the academics said international cooperation was needed to encourage monitoring and education at a local level so that virus outbreaks could be detected and contained at an early stage. Although this would be expensive, they said it would be more economically efficient than waiting for an outbreak to become a pandemic, which forces the world into lockdown. Here is more of Jonathan Watts about zoonotic viruses and mitigation. Uh, I should mention zoonotic means it's a, it's a disease or a microbe that comes from other animals. So it's zoonotic, if somebody wants to look that up, is that Z-O-O? Yeah. It's okay. It's like zoology. Zoology. Who could have seen this coming? Well, two uh, scientists predicted the emergence of a new coronavirus in bats two years ago. And tell us more just a bit about what they said, why they said it. Well, I spoke to one of these scientists. His name is Roger Frutos. He's an infectious disease specialist. He wrote a paper specifically about the link between deforestation and the spread of viruses, particularly coronaviruses. And they made the connection between Southeast Asia and East Asia, which has the worst areas of deforestation in the world, and the emergence of diseases. They said okay. it's very likely that the next big outbreak of a coronavirus jumping to humans would come from this region, would come from bats, and of course they are exactly right. Well, you mentioned Roger Frutos. He's getting ready to publish a new paper saying that if we want to prevent future pandemics, we need to recognize this human role. Is it as simple as saying, stop destroying pristine areas? It's not quite that simple, but that is a factor. What he says is humans, are, all of history, have been converting land. And this will probably go on. But it's this front line where the risks are. And as economic development spreads into more and more parts of forests in Africa, in South America, in, in Indonesia and places like this, that the monitoring and education at the local level is the absolute key so that you can catch diseases very early on. And that means not eradicating bats or necessarily even closing all wet markets. He said that's probably impractical and it will push everything underground. Well, because you and others note, bats are also very helpful. It's not the bats that are the problem. And when you mention wet markets, you're talking about these 
markets in Asia where these live animals are sold. The consensus is that it was an animal from a wet market in Wuhan, China, that carried this virus from a bat to a human. But why not? Why not shut down wet markets? His argument, it's unrealistic to close down all wet markets at markets where animals are slaughtered there or, or near there because they exist all over the world. A lot of people depend on them. The alternative is industrial farming, which also has mm. immense health problems. And similarly, he said it, it's really mindless to argue that bats should be eradicated everywhere. They are very important for insect control. They're also very important for pollination. So it's very important to live with nature, not to replace nature. And, and it's important to note that these viruses and these animals have always been there and not been causing a problem. The problem really is human activity. And so what needs to be regulated is human activity on the front line. And he says, yes, it will be incredibly expensive to have monitoring and education in all of these remote parts of the world. But he said, look at the alternative. How much has this one virus, this one pandemic cost us? And just to be clear, Jonathan, what would that monitoring look like? Essentially, the keys are to have health monitoring centres spread throughout the developing world or areas that still have a lot of nature. And what you'd have is uh, health monitoring stations that can provide early detection. And at the same time, you need an international network so that this information is passed on quickly. And then you would need monitoring of markets, the trade in food, much better regulation of forestry products, of everything to do with interaction with the wild. One other note from Tierra Smiley Evans, who's an epidemiologist at the University of California. She finds threatened species are more likely to have viruses than animals at lower risk of habitat loss and hunting. In other words, yeah, the bat is strong, but a more stressed animal is more likely maybe to be vulnerable to viruses and therefore carry them to us. I mean, it just seems like such a cautionary reminder. Right now, vulnerable, and in many cases, the more stressed out in the human species are more vulnerable to virus too. Yes, I think it was a remarkable study that she carried out in Myanmar. You could also boil down her findings to the animals that are most threatened tend to be the ones that have fared the worst, rather, in their interactions with humanity, where they're likely to come in contact with bats, with pigs, with cows, with gold miners, with loggers. And yes, they're stressed for all of these reasons, just as we humans are stressed. And it was put very beautifully by Tierra Smiley Evans when she said that she hoped that one of the positive things that might emerge from the terrible suffering that we are going through right now is that people will realise that there is a connection between the health of nature and human well-being. All right, so uh, while there's some answers, that's pretty gloomy stuff. Well, yeah, you know, uh, some of what's contained in that is, once again, that we're in the exact opposite direction and policy formation than what we should be. We're poo-pooing the World Health Organization. We're not going to conferences where there is global cooperation and, and conversation about these issues. We're trying to defund the World Health Organization. Uh, and, uh, you know, the people who can't wait to reopen during a pandemic uh, should think about, if they want to, just the economics of shutting down. Mm -hmm. Uh, if they want, if they want to discuss that it's too expensive to do some of these measures of keeping track of uh, what's happening with human interaction and uh, various environments, uh, let's look at where we're at now. Uh, one lockdown, which lasted two and a half months, uh, we have forty uh, over forty-six million people unemployed just in the United States. Mm -hmm. We're in a uh, a recession for sure. It may be a depression. Uh, and we've doled out trillions of dollars now. And I guess they think that uh, that's less expensive than doing the prophylactic of 
watching what our behavior and our encroachment on the planet creates, it's insane. Yeah. Well, do you think that's the nature of, well, maybe it's human nature or maybe it's the nature of capitalism, at least today's yeah, capitalism, I, I think, where you're just putting things, um, you're just trying to fix things as they go along versus trying yeah, well, to plan. Yeah, it's like the economists, they, I think they, uh, they do equations where I think they calculate uh, uh, one human life is worth $10 million. I don't know how they come up with that thing. But the very idea that we're doing those kind of calculations and then, you know, cranking out policy that's going to kill people because they don't have enough of a voice in their representative government, it's, it's just wicked. Mm-hmm. So do you think with, with the combination of this and this inaction or this purposeful ignorance, along with the reaction to George Floyd and all the young people on the street, do you think those two are going to merge and we're going to have a really massive change, a change in structure, a change it's, in systems. It's what the, the activists now call intersectionality. Yeah. 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 I, I think it has uh, the potential uh, to be globally changing because it's happening in so many places. But I think the second part that gives me some hope is, you know, you and I have one foot in the grave. The, a lot of these people we've, witnessed at the rallies for them this is survival yeah that, you know their their life is on the line right now because they're in their 20s and 30s and they're thinking the only way i can survive to get to the age these old farts have gotten to like you and me which we're on the we're on the wrong end of 70 um you know is to actually fight for their existence fight for their world at this yeah, point. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I think that's what is not being calculated maybe by, you know, the political establishment. The, they think they can uh, issue a few insignificant policy comments and, and the thing's going to go away. Uh, I don't see it going away. Uh, no. I think it's a moment in time uh, that does have intersectionality between uh, multiple potential disasters on this planet. And certainly the young people understand that. Um, they're educated enough to see what kind of dangerous activity uh, we're involved in. And I, I don't think they're gonna put up with the uh, status mm. quo. No, and you know, I. I know I, I've been mentioning this for a little bit, but, you know, God bless George Floyd. He might've been the catalyst to bring all of this to light. And I, you know, his sacrifice was of course immense. He gave the ultimate sacrifice, but so did Breonna Taylor. And because of George Floyd, now her name is coming out, but so did Michael Brown. So did Trayvon Martin. So did Philando Castile and all of these other folks. But this one instance with George Floyd has been a catalyst that I think, I'm hoping, could be the revolution to actually address not only racial justice and police and, and, and horrible policing, but maybe address environmental justice and when we in, when we address environmental justice maybe we can start looking at health care and all of the rest of it because it is all connected well it all it's hand and glove you, you yeah. can't take on one without taking on the rest yeah because if we if we don't have a responsible citizenship and uh, and ability to thrive, we have to ask, well, how do we get it? And, and uh, if the leaders that are being elected are not going to be on the same page, 
uh, you know, something's got to change. Right. And maybe, you know, I think the interesting thing about uh, George Floyd is all these uh, policing issues, you know, they, irregardless of what they do on the federal level, I mean, that's a policy thing that can be helpful, but ultimately it doesn't solve the racism and the structural inequalities and certainly the racist history of the country that needs to be resolved on the local level and on the personal level. Yeah. And I think that's the difference that people see all of a sudden they saw a policeman that doesn't care that he's killing another human being that he's sworn to protect. You can't deny that when you watch the video. No. And when he's looking into the camera with no remorse. Yeah. So, I mean, God bless George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, and we've been saying their name a lot. Yeah. Uh, it's, some of these things are reminiscent of what we covered uh, over a month ago, Kent State. I know. <coughs> Excuse me. You know, it's that moment in time, that, that flash moment where everything collides together and you see an imagery that just goes around the globe. That's right. That's right. Now, so far, Trump and all of the Republicans are clearly digging their heels in. They don't want to act at all. And, you know, there have been so many policies that other countries have put into effect that have maintained their economy or maintained their workforces. And we have refused to do that. McConnell still refuses to do that. So can we, can we exist? Can we survive into November and then into January when possibly a new core of people take over? Well, you know, I think that's what I was talking about with citizenship. You have to take responsibility for the government you're electing. So just if if we change parties in certain seats in the House and the Senate and the local legislatures, that's just the beginning. After that, you have to be a watchdog. Yeah, you have to stay on it. You have to have uh, a, a series of uh, policy issues that are concrete, and watch how they're implemented. And if they're not, I guess it's back out in the streets, or or never leave the streets. Yeah, never leave the streets. Uh, voting is the beginning, but participation is the mm-hmm. answer. The answer um, always comes from the working people. Yes. The politicians are always behind us. A recent Greenpeace report warned the Amazon could see the next spillover of zoonotic viruses because the Brazilian president, Javier Bolsonaro, is putting a higher priority on opening up the forest than protecting people's health. It is unforgivable. His appetite for destruction is fueling the current health crisis and will make future crises we face even worse. That was uh, a statement by Daniela Montelotto, a Greenpeace forest campaigner. Uh, She also said he must be stopped and forest protection prioritized. Without it, we will all pay the price. And and that's it. You know, a lot of the anti-environmental uh, policy wags for years have talked about, oh well, you know, environmentalism is important, but uh, it's way too expensive. Yeah, we can't afford to do these things. And. Uh, now look at the price we're paying. Exactly. Uh, whatever figures they had in mind have been dwarfed by this lockdown. Yeah. Of course, right now, the the folks that are in charge uh, know they have a lockdown based on a pandemic, but they're still blaming China for the pandemic when actually it is very more likely. It's a lot more likely 
that it actually came from uh, a an issue with regard to the planet. Yeah. With you regard know, to this, our this is, abuse of the planet. Yeah, a little bit of it is, is nature creating a balance and it's not in our favor. <laughs> with that, <laughs> creating balance and nature creating a balance and it's not in our favor. All right. So, so what type of song do we want to finish up with? Uh, I guess the first thing I would think of music is a hard rain's going to fall. Well, that is, you know, and that would work. Oh, where have you been, my blue-eyed son? And where have you been, my darling young one? I've stumbled on the side of twelve misty mountains I've walked and I've crawled on six crooked highways I've stepped in the middle of seven side forests I've been out in front of a dozen dead oceans I've been 10,000 miles in the miles of a graveyard And it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard rain We're gonna fall Oh, what did you see, my blue-eyed son? And what did you see, my darling young one? I saw a newborn baby with wild wolves all around it I saw a highway of diamonds with nobody on it I saw a black branch with blood that kept dripping so a room full of men with their hammers a-bleeding I saw a white ladder all covered with water I saw ten thousand talkers whose tongues were all broken I saw guns and sharp swords in the hands of young children And it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard and it's a hard, it's a hard rain They're gonna fall Oh, what did you hear, my blue-eyed son? And what did you hear, my darling young one? Heard the sound of a thunder that roared out a warning I Heard the roar of a wave that could drown the whole world I heard one hundred drummers whose hands were ablazing I heard ten thousand whispering and nobody listening I heard one person starve, I heard many people laughing I heard the song of a poet who died in the gutter I heard the sound of a clown who cried in the alley And it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard rain are gonna fall Oh, what did you meet, my blue-eyed son? And who did you meet, my darling young one? I met a young child beside a dead pony I met a white man who walked a black dog I met a young woman whose body was burning I 
Gonna fall 